Uh, but we are going to be in Revelation chapters 10 and 11. If you get over to Revelation chapter 10, that's where we're going to be really the whole morning. We're going to camp out in Revelation 10 and 11. Uh, I was he was due to be born. I was having a conversation with one of our elders here at the church. And uh, as we were chatting, he was just asking, you know, just making small talk. He just, he said, hey, how are you feeling about the upcoming birth of your child? And I said, I think we're feeling pretty good. I, I, you know, we, we've got the, the room ready, the nursery ready, the whole deal. We're just waiting. And, and he said, yeah, are you, are you ready? And I said, yeah, I think, I think we're ready. We've, we've done everything we can to be ready. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he goes, you're not ready. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. And he goes, but you'll be fine. That was the essence of the conversation. In fact, I still remember that to this day. You're not ready, but you'll be fine. And I remember that conversation so vividly, partly because he was 100% correct. Those of you who have, have kids, you know, you're not ready. You're never ready. It changes your life in ways you can't anticipate, ways that you're not prepared for. There are skills required of you that you don't yet have. There is character required of you that you don't yet have. And so you're not ready, and yet as you just take things day by day, and you, you follow the Lord, and you depend upon the Lord, most of us find we're fine. It works out okay. I also thought about that phrase because it can apply to a lot of different areas of our lives, not just parenting. There are a lot of tasks in our lives that you would say, I'm not ready for this, but when you look back on it, you go, that turned out all right. Maybe those of you who are in college right now, you began and you said, I'm not ready. I don't know how to navigate the complexities of college life and classes. And yet you look back as a senior or a recent graduate, you go, that turned out all right. Those of you who are married, certainly on your wedding day, you thought, I'm not ready. I don't know what it takes to be a good or a godly husband or wife. But you look back now and hopefully you say, okay, it's, it's worked out all right. Not without its ups and downs, but it's been fine. A lot of areas of our life could be summed up with that type of a phrase. You're not ready for it but you'll be okay. And I thought about that this week because when we look at our passage, we're gonna see how one job that we've been given, one role we've been given to be messengers of God's truth can be summed up that way as well. And that every single person who has ever been given the task to speak on God's behalf, to share God's message of eternal life, God's message of both judgment and redemption, everybody who's been given that type of message to share has said, I'm not ready for this. I'm not equipped for this. I'm not prepared for this. I don't have the qualifications. I don't have the character. I don't have the knowledge to speak on God's behalf, to speak the truth, to share the gospel, to proclaim the message he's given me. I'm not ready for this. But what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that although we're not ready for it, by the power of God, by the grace of God, we'll be all right. 
And the reason is because the message that God has given us is an unstoppable message. It's a message that cannot be silenced. It's a message of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which will prevail. No matter what mistakes you make along the way in presenting the message, no matter what stumbles you and I make along the way in living out the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God will prevail. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. He defeated death. He defeated sin. And if all of that is true, then the gospel will prevail. Because if death could not defeat him, then Satan cannot defeat him. Hell cannot defeat him. All the kingdoms of the earth cannot defeat him. Nothing can defeat or stop or silence the message of Jesus. So even though you and I say, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared to go out into a world that is hostile to Jesus and carry that message. The testimony of the scripture is if you stick with Jesus, you'll be fine. And if you remember, as we've studied the book of Revelation, we've said that's a huge emphasis in the book of Revelation is not to scare you, but to offer you hope. Every messenger of God that we see in the scriptures on some level has faced this tension of feeling, I'm not ready to face the opposition of the world as I prepare, present God's message, and I'm not ready to face the inadequacy of my own life and my own words and my own heart. I mean, Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Peter and here the apostle John and over and over and over again, people are commissioned to speak on God's behalf and God keeps choosing people and sending people to speak on his behalf. And yet people are resistant because we're not ready. And so God is in this passage, we're gonna see how the spirit of God again is gonna speak to the apostle John and say, John, I wanna remind you that the message you are bringing on my behalf is an unstoppable message, even though it's bittersweet, even though it's hard to proclaim, even though you'll face opposition for proclaiming it, you'll be fine. If you remember where we are in the flow of the book of Revelation, uh, you'll remember we're in this seven-year tribulation period. And uh, we've talked about that numerous weeks in a row, so I'm not going to go into it in detail again. If you've missed our previous sermons on the flow of end times, I'd encourage you to go back and listen uh, to the sermons that preceded this one. You can find them on our website or YouTube or uh, anywhere else that we post them in the app. But we're in this, this seven-year great tribulation period, remember, where the church, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ in this era, in this age, the church has been raptured, and now there are all of these judgments that God is sending on the earth, and they increase in severity, and they're coming rapidly as we move through the tribulation. And you'll remember last week in Revelation 8 and 9, we saw the second major set of judgments, the trumpet judgments, and they were rough, right? They were, they were harsh, and they were severe, and they were difficult, but as these judgments are coming, God is sending a message that there's always still time. As long as you're alive and Jesus isn't yet here, there's always time to believe in Jesus, to turn, as the scripture would say, from your idolatry, your rejection of Jesus, and turn toward Jesus. Remember we said the only place for shelter is in Jesus. And so these judgments are coming, and it's difficult, and it's hard. And so here in Revelation 10 and 11, we have a pause in the judgments where God is, is gonna turn to John 
And he's gonna say, John, I just wanna remind you, I've commissioned you to be my messenger. And if I've commissioned you to be my messenger, then I'll empower you for the task. And then we're gonna zero in on some events that are happening in Jerusalem. And God's gonna say, John, I wanna show you that there will always be messengers. There are messengers today, there were messengers in the past, in the Old Testament, in the apostolic era, throughout church history. There will always be witnesses. Those witnesses will always face opposition. Those witnesses might always feel that they're not ready, but he's going to say, John, as long as you're carrying the message of Jesus, it is unstoppable and you'll be fine. That's where we're going to head as we move into Revelation 10 and 11. And I want us to ask the question, are we willing to take up this task as messengers of Jesus Christ, even if we're afraid, even if we feel inadequate, even if we face opposition. We're not apostles, we're not prophets, but we are ordinary people given the message of Jesus Christ. And God's going to say to John, John, I want to remind you again, this is a noble task and a task that cannot be stopped as long as you're moving along with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God. So that's where we're going to go in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to see some kind of crazy things today, but follow with me. Revelation chapter 10. Y'all are like, we've seen crazy things every week up till now. You're right. But here we go. Revelation 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book or a little scroll which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound and the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. So here's, here's our setup. Again, we're at an interlude between the the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, which are about to come. And all of a sudden, instead of seeing that seventh trumpet sound right away, John sees what he says, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. The first mighty angel that we saw was in Revelation chapter 5, next to the throne of God. There There was a strong angel. We'll see another mighty angel later in the book. There are three in the book. This mighty angel descends from heaven and he places one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. The, the, the idea here is this isn't just an angel standing on the seashore. This is a big angel and he's coming down from heaven and he's like the Colossus of Rhodes, which incidentally would not have been too far from where John was writing this book in Patmos, the Colossus of Rhodes was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so I imagine that type of size would have come into people's minds as as they think about, here's this angel and he is straddling the sea and the land. His head is like a cloud. He's covered in a cloud, representing the glory of God. There's a rainbow around him. Remember we talked about this earlier, the rainbow represents also the grace and the mercy 
of God. And his face shines like the sun, like Moses' face shone as God's messenger when he came down from Mount Sinai or out of the tabernacle. And his legs are like pillars of fire, as it was a pillar of fire who led God's people through the wilderness to deliverance. So here's this strong and mighty angel that represents God's holiness and God's grace, God's deliverance and God's glory. And he comes down and he straddles the sea and the land. He comes from heaven. Heaven and sea and earth are the three realms of the universe. And the idea is God rules over all of them. And this angel straddles them. And here's this giant angel. And John says, but he's holding a little scroll. Now that's interesting. Because in Revelation 5, the other strong angel introduced another scroll. Not a little scroll, but apparently a regular-sized scroll on which were written all of God's plan for redemption and for judgment that was going to come in the book. But now this big angel holds a little scroll, and that little scroll apparently contains just a piece of the plan that's going to come. It's a small subset of the big scroll. And so this angel begins to speak as God's messenger, and he sounds like a lion. And when he speaks, it says the seven thunders of God sounded. And so John, doing what John thinks he's supposed to do, he grabs his quill and he begins to write it all down. And then from heaven, there's a voice that says, hey, John, seal that stuff up and don't write it. Right? And I kind of feel bad for John in this moment. In fact, all the way through this book, it's like John stands when he's supposed to not stand, and he kneels when he's not supposed to kneel. He doesn't write when he should, and now he's writing. He's like, I'm doing what you told me to do. And he says, hey, seal that up. Don't write it. And I just imagine John going, okie dokie, right? And he just folds it up, puts it in his pocket. I wasn't doing, I wasn't writing that. I wasn't doing anything, right? He says, don't write it. Why not? The idea is there are aspects of God's message, aspects of God's kingdom that remain a mystery known only to God. You don't need to know everything. We don't need to know everything. But we need to know what God has said to us. And so he says, John, I want you not to write this, but I am gonna commission you again with a special message to be my messenger of particular truths that I'm gonna reveal. That's the setup in 10, one to seven. This angel says, God is not going to delay any longer. That's what I want you to know. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets, that God's promises are about to come true. John, I just want you to hold on a little longer in this vision. And he would say to us, I want you just to wait just a little longer. God's kingdom is about to come. As bad as things have been, John, I just want you to take heart that the story is almost over. And remember, the end of the story is going to be good. And so when we get to verse eight of chapter 10, then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. I imagine John can't just take it, remember, because the angel is really big and John's one of us. And so he looks up, he goes, can you hand me that book, please? So the angel hands it down to him. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. 
And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Here's the first thing we see about God's message that John is sent to proclaim and that often we're sent to proclaim. It's bitter sweet. There's a little bit of what you might see as a surprising twist in this, right? So the angel says, I want you to take the book, John, and he doesn't say read it. He says, eat it. Now that's weird, right? Why would you eat it? We're not in the the habit usually of eating books. Uh, Typically, if you want to learn something or you want to teach something, you read it and then you say it. If your kid is in science and you ask them, what did you do in school today? And they say, we learned the periodic table. And by the way, the teacher sent us home, all of us with a copy, and we need to eat it with dinner tonight. You would go, that seems like a suspect teaching technique. Right, But here, the idea is, as John eats it, he absorbs it. He takes it in. It's becoming a part of him. God's message is going into him. But here's here's what happens is he eats it, and it's sweet in his mouth, but it is bitter in his stomach. It makes his stomach unsettled. I mentioned this passage to my wife this week, and she said, like a donut does. (laughs) I said, Yes, except, except in this case, uh, the donut is, is, let's face it, bad for you, right? But this is actually a good message. It's a sweet message because it's the word of God. It's the word of how God is going to bring in his kingdom and, and vindicate his people and redeem all of the earth. Why is it bitter in his stomach? Because it's gonna face opposition and because there still is judgment to come. The judgment has to precede the final redemption. And so there are still some some difficult things ahead. And so John learns this message is bittersweet. It's kind of a good news, bad news type of scenario. If you're gonna be a messenger of God's truth, often you are presenting good news alongside bad news. It's not too unlike those of you who are perhaps doctors. Sometimes you have to present to your patients both good news and bad news. And people might not want to hear the bad news, especially the news that requires them to change something. So if I go to the doctor and he says, the good news is you're generally healthy and you can live a long and full and productive life. And the bad news is, in order to do that, you're going to have to severely dial back your intake of tortilla chips and queso. All right? And I, what, do I, what do I say? I say, uh, I, I need a different doctor, right? I don't, <laughs> don't want to hear that message because that message cuts to my heart and it requires change. And, and yet the reality is that he's, he's hitting at an uncomfortable truth. And that's what God's messengers often have to do. This is why when prophets in the Old Testament like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses are often called to be prophets, they, they, they tend to respond by saying, is there anybody else that you can find? Because I know what's gonna happen once I start proclaiming the only way to find eternal life and to escape this judgment remember, is to find shelter in Jesus, the only way. Sometimes as a pastor, I face that tension when I hold the word of God in my hand and I see things in the word of God that are clear truth from God's word, and yet I know that to say them is gonna provoke at times opposition. 
frustration, and maybe even hostility. But that's not just true of pastors or prophets or apostles. It's true of everybody who says, I want to follow Jesus and take his message into the world. Every single one of us is called to be his messenger. And just like John, we will find it's often a bittersweet task. It's a message of life, but one that often won't be well-received. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead, and all who trust in him can have eternal life. The bad news is that none of us can get there without Jesus. And so in our flesh, we want to deny our sin, we want to avoid our sin, we want to run away from the reality of who God is and his holiness. We want to run away from the reality that the only way is to trust in Jesus. That is the sin nature. And so as we preach that the only way is to seek shelter in Jesus and to trust what God has said, will find that being his messenger might be bittersweet. So John finds that here. But now, now we're gonna see as the passage moves on, we're gonna zero in and God is gonna show John a couple of other messengers and what they're gonna face, not in John's day, but in the future. And the idea seems to be God will always choose human messengers to present his message, and they will always face opposition, just as John is doing, just as we will face. God's messengers will always face opposition, and what we're gonna see is even amidst that opposition, the message cannot be silenced. The message cannot be silenced. Follow with me as we begin chapter 11. John says, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. So now John zeroes in in this vision and he sees Jerusalem. So so remember, previously we've been seeing judgments that are going on across the whole world. And now it seems like what is happening is that we're moving back again to the the beginning point of this seven-year tribulation. Now, to be clear, uh, people debate over whether we're in the first half or the second half of this tribulation period. It doesn't make a huge difference in how we understand the text. But as I've looked at it this week, I think what's going on is now there's, there's a zooming in. And God is saying, John, we're going to go back to the beginning of this seven-year period, the first three and a half years, and I want to take you not to the world, but I want to zero in on Jerusalem. And he says, John, I'm going to give you a measuring rod, and I want you to measure the temple. This is very reminiscent of Ezekiel 40 to 42, when Ezekiel saw a vision of the future temple of God, and he's supposed to measure it with this rod. The rod would typically be about 10 feet High. So you've got this, this rod that he's using to measure out the temple. And the idea is twofold. One, John, I want you to see that during this tribulation period, first of all, there is a temple in Jerusalem. That's really remarkable because today there is not. But the idea is God is, is regathering the Jewish people so he can fulfill his promises to them once and for all as they come to know Jesus in mass and they worship God in this temple. 
God is preserving his people, Jew and Gentile, together. But he says, I want you to leave out the outer court. That was called the court of the Gentiles. It's outside the temple. Do not measure it. Why? It's been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for three and a half years. In other words, while there's worship going on inside the temple, the nations are persecuting the Jewish people. They're hostile to the Jewish people because they see them as God's chosen people. And all these judgments are raining down from God. And so these people are worshiping and proclaiming Jesus Christ and they're facing hostility. What we know, and we're going to see this as we move later into the book, is that about the midpoint of that tribulation, the beast of the book or the Antichrist, he's going to put a stop to all of this sacrifice in the temple and begin to actively persecute the Jewish people. But at this point, they're worshiping and they're proclaiming God. And then he goes on and he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Again, that's three and a half years. Just another way of saying three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth uh, is a sign of mourning and the need for repentance. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is another reference back to Zechariah chapter 4, where there were two witnesses. In that case, it was uh, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel who are witnessing to God's holiness and God's redemption. But here it's, it's these two other witnesses, two olive trees and lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So that's a reference again to Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So what is going on here? There's a lot here in this passage. But essentially, we have these two men, these two witnesses of God who are standing in Jerusalem. And John doesn't tell us who they are. And so as you can imagine, there's an entire like commentary cottage industry devoted to trying to figure out who are these guys. But nobody actually knows specifically who they are. What we do know is that their ministry at least resembles the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Remember, Elijah was this prophet who preached against uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, especially pagan kings like Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And he, uh, under God's power, he actually uh, led to a drought in the nation. He shut up the sky so that there was no rain. That was Elijah. And only when he prayed to God 
and asked for rain? Did the rain come back? Moses, of course, was the leader in Israel when God sent all of the plagues, the blood and the hail and the darkness and all of the plagues that are alluded to here. So these two guys are in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, announcing the kingdom of God and calling for repentance to say it's not too late. And the idea is, even in this terrible era, God sends these two witnesses, these two testifiers, and they stand in Jerusalem where there's hostility and there's violence and there's a, a refusal to turn to Jesus amongst the nations. And they tell people, it's not too late. It's not too late. Even now, you can be forgiven. Even now, redemption is possible. Salvation is possible. And yet, of course, people don't want to hear the message. And so John is seeing that just as he is persecuted as a messenger of God, so these two witnesses are persecuted as messengers of God. And here's what happens is, is at some point the beast, and we'll see him pop up throughout the rest of the book. This is the Antichrist, this world leader who opposes God's plans. The beast rises up, makes war with them, he kills them, and then they lie on the street dead for three and a half days because everybody wants to celebrate these witnesses of God are dead. We defeated them, we stopped God's message. And so they're having parties. It's like a, a global holiday, national day of the two dead witnesses. They're sending each other gifts, presents, because they're so excited. One commenter that I read, he called this diabolical Christmas, the last great Mardi Gras type celebration. That was what one other person said. They're handing out gifts and sending them to one another. Hooray, hooray, hooray. God's witnesses are dead. And as they're celebrating, the witnesses come back to life. It says everybody who is watching them sees them come back to life. And a voice from heaven says, come on up here. And they stand up on their feet and they ascend into heaven. And then there's earthquakes and all kinds of heavenly signs. Some people die, but here's... Here's what's amazing is that, that at this moment, this is one of the few moments that we see people turn and give glory to God. The message seems to bear fruit. They realize God is at work. God always sends a messenger. This moment of their resurrection is, is so powerful because God is validating their message and he is shocking those who have opposed God's plan. The message cannot be silenced. I read... Um, an article this week about a woman. Uh, she had flown from Australia back to her home country of Burundi. And uh, tragically, uh, her husband hired somebody to kill her. And so when she got to Burundi, she was kidnapped by these people who were hired to kill her. And yet, uh, for some reason, by the grace of God, the men that were hired decided not to go through with it. They let her go. And they told her, I would recommend you get out of the country. And so, so what she actually did was she, she booked a ticket secretly to fly back to Australia and she showed up at her own funeral while her husband was having a fake funeral to mourn the wife that he had supposedly killed. And it's one of those moments, I just, I'm like, I wish I had been there to see that. He thought he had gotten rid of her. She was still alive. In this case, these witnesses, they were dead. They were really dead. And everybody says, we did it. We accomplished this evil. 
And God says, you didn't accomplish anything. You can't silence the message of the gospel. So they stand on their feet. They ascend to heaven. There are signs in the heavens and on the earth, and some people trust in Jesus. Despite the message being bittersweet, it can't be stopped. And I think John sees this at this point in the narrative as a reminder to him. John, you're called to a tough task. Everybody who proclaims Jesus is called to a tough task. But if you're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, it's a message that cannot be stopped, that cannot be silenced. A message that will in the end, we're gonna see this here at the end of this passage, a message that will prevail that will prevail. Look at the final few verses of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. I wanna pause here for a minute, because when I read verses 15 and 16, You know what came to mind? The hallelujah chorus. Some of you probably read this and and it came to your mind. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Right? And over and over and over again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That is where George Frederick Handel got these words. was, Was right here. He shall reign forever and ever and ever toward the end of his great Messiah oratorio. Now what I what I found interesting about it was what do we do when they sing? The hallelujah chorus. We stand up, right? We stand up. That's tradition. They say that uh, King George the something stood up when he first heard hallelujah chorus, whether that's true or not. But what I found fascinating here was uh, nobody stands up when they sing this. They fall down. We stand up in respect, but they fell down in awe. He will reign forever and ever. And they worship God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. That's a reference to Psalm 2 that Jake read earlier. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? Your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So at this moment, the seventh angel sounds. The third woe begins. And heaven begins to sing again, God, your kingdom is almost here. Your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom has come and you will reign forever and ever. God, although the nations raged against you and they plotted to kill the Messiah and they plotted against your people for generation after generation after generation, this is the moment of justice on the earth and vindication and redemption for your people. And so what we're gonna see as we move through the rest of the book is God's justice and redemption accomplished. And so they begin to see. 
they begin to shout. They begin to worship God, that the message of God will prevail. And so again, John sees all of this in this interlude to say, John, I need you to prophesy again. I need you to keep doing the task of a messenger, even though it is a bittersweet task. But I want you to know, if you're with Jesus, you are always on the right side of history. If you're with Jesus, you are holding a message that cannot be silenced, that cannot be stopped. You are holding a message of a kingdom that will prevail, that will win, that will not be defeated. And so, John, I want you to say it again, that Jesus Christ will reign. I want you to say it again, that the only shelter, the only way to eternal life is in Jesus Christ. I want you to say it again, that no nation, no kingdom, no throne, no tribe, no tongue, nobody who opposes God is gonna win. God's kingdom will prevail. And as all this chaos is going on on the earth, John sees a a, a hole open up in heaven and he sees the very temple of God and the ark of the covenant of God and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's all these flashings. Why does God see the temple of God? Because remember, we just saw that the earthly temple is being persecuted and harassed and trampled. And the idea is nobody tramples the temple of God in heaven. Nobody else can defile the temple of God in heaven because he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. God's message will prevail. So John is called to be a messenger. His witnesses are called to be messengers. The prophets have been his messengers. The apostles have been his messengers you and I are called to be his messengers. And the reminder of Revelation 10 to 11, again, is you're not ready. God knows that. But you hold an eternal, unstoppable message of hope, of eternal life. And so as you share that message that cannot be stopped, you're not not ready, you're not adequate, you're not equipped but you'll be fine because the God of the universe goes with you and me. So our our question this morning as we close is will you and I faithfully deliver the message that God has given us to those who need to hear it? And I wanna say this, that the, the message of Jesus, it is profound, but it's not complicated. It is simply that all have sinned All are deserving of judgment and of eternal separation from God in hell. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And all who trust in him can have eternal life. That's the message. And you can say it in 30 seconds or you can say it in 45 minutes or an hour and a half. But the question is, as we go into our own sphere of influence, Will we take the message and proclaim it and share it? Because the the moment is advancing, is coming soon, when the kingdom of the world will be the kingdom of his Christ. And our prayer and our hope is that those that we know will join us and worship him there. So will we faithfully deliver the message that God has given us to those who need to hear it. Let me pray 
and we'll close in worship. Father, we're thankful for your word. What a joy it is to read it and what power we find in it. Lord, we pray that we would both understand it and obey it today. Father, we pray that we would listen to your spirit's voice, listen to your word, and follow where you lead. And we pray that we would take the good news of Jesus into our world, that we would take it seriously and take this commission seriously. Even though it is a bittersweet and often difficult task, we know that you're with us. Just as you told your disciples in Matthew 28, as you commissioned them and us to go into the world and to make disciples of all the nations, God, you said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we go knowing you're with us. And our prayers, we will take courage in your strength, in your truth, and in your power. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.